Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. It wasn't 700 pages. It wasn't a 455-paragraph opinion. It was just about 17 words. Right is right, wrong is wrong, and this is just ridiculous. Get out of my courtroom. I'm, I'm ready to go home already. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing uh, this Monday afternoon? I'm good. I'm excited, Steve. We have a, I'm going to call it a crossover since we've done enough of them. It's, I'm going to call it a crossover podcast. We've got GTP with, with DAP. And with, yeah, hidden legal figures. So uh, so we we made this uh, announcement last time that we had Derek Alexander Pope on, who's been on the show a number of times and is one of our favorite guests that I now think that Derek has officially become uh, our, our uh, um, mo- we, we've had him on the show more than anybody else, including our law partner, uh, Jeff Harris. So, yes. <laughs> so congratulations, Derek. You are now the new champion. Thank you, Steve. And as I told you, I told Jeff, I'm coming for you and the throne is mine. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> what does he win, Steve? Hey, I, you know, you know, uh, you know, we love to give away our mugs. I think I don't know that we've ever told our listeners that, uh, that every uh, guest who comes on um, to the show actually gets a mug, a Great Trials podcast mug. And so uh, uh, Derek has a, has basically a family set of mugs now. He's got everybody in the family can walk around with one. So uh, we'll have to come up with something who's been on the show the most and, uh, and and find something special for Derek. Yeah. Yeah. We'll think about it. In the meantime, we should also, we should bribe our, uh, well, I shouldn't just say this while recording, but I'm going to anyway, we should, we should bribe people to send us questions. You know, we've been trying to get listener questions with mugs. Yeah. Maybe we can send them some, uh, a mug for a question. Yeah. Anyway, it's got to be a good question. One yeah. that we use on the air. Yeah. At our discretion. Yeah. We're just, we send <laughs> mugs out everywhere. No, which uh, which I'm happy to do. I, I I love giving away our mugs because it usually means we've had a great show. So yeah. Um, exactly. Well, Derek, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Well, it is good to have you on the show again. And uh, for for um, those listeners who don't remember uh, uh, Derek, uh, he's been on the show a number of times, always just a wealth of knowledge, uh, especially when it comes to history, when it comes to civil rights. Uh, and, you know, basically just give just giving us a great uh, view of some of the 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 uh, huge legal cases of the past and talking about their effect on uh, on civil rights and um, and how they've affected where we are now in the legal field. So uh, so welcome, Derek. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Yvonne. It's always my pleasure to be on Great Trials podcast work that you guys do uncovering the background, the insides, the insights of litigation letting the listener know how these things actually take place. It's a monumental, tremendous work that you guys do. And to think enough of what we're doing at Hidden Legals Figures to have, as Yvonne said, that crossover to see, make the connection between the present, the past, where we would like to go, hope to go in the future. It's it's always a good conversation. Always appreciate being here. Well, we we love having you. Yeah. And I want to mention for our... um, for our law student listeners, I know we have some, and um, I really encourage you to check out all of our episodes with Derek and to check out his podcast as well, because my experience in getting ready for the episodes with Derek, and obviously when we're talking about them, is how much 
um, of this stuff I did not learn in, in con law, con law one and con law two. And, you know, part of that is just, it's a lot of ground to cover in those classes. It's a lot of cases to cover. So you don't get to, um, dig into the background in some of these cases, um, like you get to on this show. So I encourage people to check out Derek's podcast and, um, check out our other episodes with Derek, if you haven't, because this is stuff I really wish I knew in law school, stuff like how we're going to talk about today, like how these cases happen, um, and kind of the strategy behind that is something that, you know, I just, I, I didn't really, I don't think I learned that much about. And if I did, I forgot it in law school. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> it, it is really good to hear. I mean, hear some of the backstory to some of these cases and then how one case leads to the next. And we're going to be doing that today uh, with two cases. Uh, and I'll talk about them in a second. But I'll, I'll tell you the names of them are Buchanan versus Worley, uh, which is a 1917 Supreme Court case. And then Shelley versus Kramer, uh, which is a 1948 uh Supreme Court case. And both cases have to do with uh, property rights and um, either city ordinances or restrictive covenants that basically made it so that uh, Black Americans uh, could not um, live in or um, or purchase property that was in predominantly white neighborhoods. Uh, and so we're going to talk about those. But Derek, let me uh, I, I know we do this every time, but I want to make sure everybody knows uh, who you are, what your background is and, and uh, where they can find you. So first, I'll say uh, that, that Derek is the president and founder of the Arc of Justice Institute. You can look him up on on the That's uh, on the and an arc is A.R.C. Uh, .net. Uh, so on the arc.net. And he is also the podcast host for Hidden Legal Figures co- podcast, which uh, am, am I am I right, uh, Derek and Yvonne, that, that that actually features Yvonne doing some voiceover work on there? You are correct about that, Steve. <laughs> when we began our second season, we want to go back to where a lot of these issues began and they began in the reconstruction period. And unlike the work we were doing in our first season, when we were fortunate enough to be able to find the audio recordings of some of the voices of the lawyers that we depicted in the podcast during the reconstruction period, we don't have that luxury. Right. So we decided what we needed to do was to recruit some incredible voice talent and Miss Yvonne Godfrey. That's right. That's right. Incredible voice talent. Yeah. yeah. Portrayed among others, uh, the 16th president of the United States of America, oh. Abraham Lincoln. Let's hear it, Yvonne. Let's hear your oh, Abraham Lincoln. Check out the episode. Check out the episode, Steve. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't probably, believe you haven't heard it already. Right, exactly. <laughs> probably when we uh, when you had to, you know, uh, book Yvonne to do her voiceover, you had to talk to her uh, manager who talked to her agent who then talked to the other agent. And then finally you get to Yvonne. You cannot imagine the <laughs> arduous measures we had to go through. That's right. <laughs> and, and just but but it was it was all worth it. And I know that when we finished. And each time I listen to them, I I know that the very next phrase I'm going to hear is and the award, the Emmy goes to an outstanding (laughs) podcast series. That's right. right. Please. Yvonne Yvonne could not be with us today because she's off. But we want to accept this award. (laughs) That's right. Right. That's right. Oh, I can dream. 
Well, uh, Derek, just to give a little bit about your background, before you were the president and founder of and director of the Arc of Justice Institute, uh, you have been the chief of staff of the Fulton County Board of Commissioners, the general counsel to the Medical Association of Georgia. Uh, you were a adjunct professor uh, at Georgia State uh, University Law School, um, assistant legal counsel to the Georgia General Assembly, and part of a the um, White House data-driven justice initiative under President Obama, um, a graduate of Morris Brown College, and then uh, Loyola University Law School. And then um, I wanted to make sure I mentioned these, that you, uh, you wrote a book uh, called By the Content, of our character, a declaration of independence for colored folks, Negroes, black people, and African-Americans, and then did a spoken word CD called The Racetrack with your daughter, I understand. So um, very good. And then I think what I, I, I we were talking about before this is you are getting ready to, to uh, start a new adjunct professor uh, ship or uh, ad, adjunct professor job at uh, Mercer University. That's is that right? Great. That's right. That's sure am. Uh, class starts Thursday, as a matter of fact, and uh, it'll be the legal environment of business. And so I'm looking forward to that. That's a little, little new wrinkle. I've, um, as you mentioned, taught at the law school level, and that was a bit familiar to me because, of course, having been in law school, I know exactly what the students are thinking. Practiced in the area, I have an, more than extensive experience and understanding of anything they might ask but trying to distill this topic down to a group of undergraduate students. Right. That's a little challenging. Um, and, uh, but I'm really looking forward to it, kind of very excited about it, how to take a piece of information and make it relevant, make it timely, make it current, make it intriguing to them. And I was wondering what I could do. And I know there's gonna be a generational difference. And I was wondering how could I make it make them make make them familiar with it. And I was talking to my daughter that you that you mentioned and of all the things that you did mention that I've done that that's been my favorite, the CD, the racetrack yeah. CD. And it's my favorite because I got a chance to do it with her. Right. That's, that's that was my favorite. But I, t I was telling her about the class and I told her that I want to find some way to have some kind of, you know, an example that they could relate to that no matter what the age group is. And I told, I started saying that there's a, there's a company that what I know everybody understands. And as soon as I said it, my daughter said, Disney, I'm like, oh, yeah, there it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're going to look at how Disney, um, how it started, how it formed, how it evolved. We'll take a look at some of the cases that they've been involved in some intellectual property matters, and then we'll talk about the formation, the structures of business. What's the what? What are the kinds of decisions you, you make when you're organizing your business? What are the some of, some of the common legal questions and issues that arise, irrespective of what kind of business you have, big, small, service, product, industry? Uh, what, what are these things that are common to it? And I think the room is going to be filled with some individuals who want to go on to law school, who are business majors, who may find themselves in upper level management or some at some point being entrepreneurs. So it's going to be pretty interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds interesting. And uh, I mean, I think picking Disney as a, as sort of a, a basis, I mean, they're involved in so many different areas of business have done so much and it, it, it uh, um, you know, you'll be able to talk about a lot of information there. Yes, yes, yes. So that, yeah, that Disney is is just was almost a no brainer for just that reason. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a great idea because you really, if you're a lawyer, you still end up wanting to know, or, you know, you, you end up really working for a business and wanting, you know, there's the law that you practice and then there's the law that affects your business. And then I'm sure we have all experienced this, you know, like getting texts from like the person who cuts your hair or the person who, you know, the movers, I mean, these are all real examples of people that I've gotten that once they think you're, once they know you're a lawyer, it uh, things come up in their business where they want to know how the law is going to play in. And I frequently don't know the answer. Um, but all of that to say, it comes up all the time. What a great idea for a class um, to kind of, you know, talk about that intersection and to have such a good illustration. I want to, I want to take that class. Well, drop uh, on by Thursday. We do it Tuesdays and Thursday for the, for the next eight weeks, starting this Thursday. From one o'clock to three fifteen. Nope, I'm wrong. One fifteen to three thirty. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. All I'm right. To the Atlanta campus of Mercer, and you know, the last time we were doing this, Yvonne and you, but that's how we got you on the podcast to portray Lincoln. Uh, so now that you've mentioned your interest here, you <laughs> might have you might make a guest appearance in the class to offer some litigation strategy. So check your inbox. You might see. Right. A- Cool. Ready. So ready. as as uh, as Walt Disney himself, or, or are we talking Mickey Mouse? What, what are we talking here? <laughs> oh, I, haven't, I haven't figured out the character yet. <laughs> right. <don't> right. <laughs> Give me some time, Steve. We'll come right. on. There, there's so many to pick from. from that's right. That's right. I feel like I have I've kind of an Ursula look happening right, <laughs> right. now. Okay. Right. 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 Um, right. Anyway, I'm not anti playing a villain, but uh, right. 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 Uh, we'll see where it goes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. All right. All right. Well, let's talk about the cases that we uh, that, that, that we have featured in the show today. And uh, and, and Derek, uh, I'll, I was planning on starting with Buchanan versus Worley, since that comes first in the, um, uh, you know, in the timeline. So it's, it's a case that dates back to 1917. And, uh, you know, what I thought was really interesting about this case is that it's a it's a civil rights case uh, that most people don't talk about. And it's well before Brown versus Board of Education, well before the 1964 Civil Rights Act. I mean, we're talking back to 1917 is when the decision was made. And I think the events that um, that, that make it up happened in 1910. So we're talking, uh, you know, uh, I mean, basically 50 years before the Civil Rights Act. So um, just the, the basic facts were that um, the city of Louisville, Kentucky had an ordinance, a city ordinance that forbade any black individuals to own or occupy uh, a buildings uh, or to have a residence uh, in areas that had a essentially in a, a majority of white persons in there. And there was basically I mean, it was obviously a very race based uh, law, but also there was some claim that they thought it would somehow diminish the value of the properties. But um, essentially what happened is you had uh, a local civil rights leader named William Worley, uh, who was the head of the uh, NAAC, I think, NAACP in, in Louisville. Um, and then you had a had uh, Charles Buchanan, who was a local real estate agent, and he was uh, uh, somewhat friendly to to the NAACP and to and to Mr. Worley. Um, and basically, he had a piece of property that was for sale in a predominantly white neighborhood, and so. Um, William Worley agreed to buy it. Or the, the the price I think was two hundred and fifty dollars, um, but he put a um, 
a condition. If I, if I'm if I'm getting this right, and tell me, Derek, if I am. But I, he put a condition in his um, in, in in agreeing to buy the property. And I'll just read what I what I have here. It says it is understood that I am purchasing the above property for the purpose of having erected thereon a house which I propose to make my residence. And it is a distinct part of this agreement that I shall not be required to accept a deed to the above property or to pay for said property unless I have the right under the laws of the state of Kentucky and the city of Louisville to occupy said property as a residence. So he 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 put that condition in there. And obviously it was known that, that this was in a, a, a white um, majority neighborhood. And uh, if I read the facts right, it, he did not pay the full 250. He paid uh, 150 and withheld $100 because the, the property wasn't worth as much since he would not be able to uh, uh, build his residence there, would not be able to live there under uh, the city of Louisville uh, ordinances. And I, and I know Yvonne's going to get on there. I should have said it right. Louisville. I got it. It's Louisville. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> so, so I, I know I was screwing up the uh, pronunciation as we were talking, um, but, uh, but so anyways, so the city, um, so basically then um, um, Mr. Buchanan sues Mr. Worley uh, to basically enforce this, uh, this purchase agreement. Uh, and the case ends up going up to the Supreme court uh, on whether or not um um, I mean, basically, and, and, and Derek, correct me if I'm wrong, basically, the, it was a 14th Amendment uh, on equal protection and due process claims. But whether or not a person, whether you're black or white or whatever um, color, has the right to to buy or sell a piece of property to whoever they want. And the Supreme Court ultimately decided in that case that the uh, the state or the city cannot infringe on your right to buy or sell the property to whoever you want. And so they ended up striking down the city ordinance. Is that basically right there, Derek? That's, that's basically what struck it down, not on 14th Amendment grounds, but as you point out, impairment of contract. You, we, we, you, the city ordinance here just does it, it in fact infringes and inhibits upon a person's right to contract as they please. And without reaching the equal protection question that would come much later. And as we'll discuss in our second case, they made their ruling based on impairment of contract. But as you talked about, Steve, this case comes, starts in, you mentioned 1910. That's the, that's the background of the case. And what an interesting historical arc, if you will, for the background of this case how the case came into being and how it connects to our second um, case is, is incredible. We're, we're here in 1910, about a decade and a half removed from Plessy versus Ferguson. And that's, I, I want to emphasize that because it's easy for us to, and the list, for us to talk about it and for the listener to hear dates and years, 1917, 1948 and think about them as such a long time ago from 2021, but to place them in the context of being just a decade and a half removed from Plessy versus Ferguson gives you gives the listener a different picture of what's actually going on. We've got Plessy in 1896 that's, that says the, the, the Supreme Court says that the, the 14th Amendment uh, Equal Protection Clause permits laws from the state that maintain the custom of separate but equal. 
And so here we get a decade and a half from that conversation, from that ruling. And we have individuals, black and white, who are functioning and trying to figure out exactly what the landscape of the United States in general, and particularly the southern aspect of the United States is going to look like with respect to uh, race relations and living conditions in that regard, since the Supreme Court has now said separate but equal is a constitutional aspect. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis <laughs> you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. Now, we've got, we've got people doing what they've always done. They educate themselves. They go about establishing businesses. They move from this place to that place, one locale to the next locale. A Supreme Court decision doesn't stop that. And so one of the things that happened in 1897, uh, a, young, a man named by the, by the name of W.F. George W.F. McMeachin, a uh, black man, graduates from Yale Law School in 1897. His classmates named Walter Scott Miller. Uh, McMeachin practices 
in Connecticut for a little while, but later on moves to Baltimore, where along with his uh, classmate, Walter Scott Miller, and a Howard Law, Law graduate named William Ashby Hawkins, they set up a law practice, become tremendously successful, Yvonne. And as a result of the success that they have, McMeachin decides that he's going to purchase a home in an area called the Utah Place neighborhood. Now that abuts about a block away, uh, a what, we, what, what was then called a white neighborhood. Well, Mr. McMeachin's success and Mr. McMeachin's purchase of the home in the Utah Place neighborhood seemingly upset another gentleman who coincidentally happened to be a lawyer whose name was Milton Dashiell. And Milton did not graduate from law school. He read the law that was common at that moment. We all know you could become a member of the bar by doing what they call reading law. But even though he was successful at reading law, he obviously was not too successful at practicing law. He didn't enjoy any, any degree of financial benefits from it. And, and one law review article even says that he was characterized as a briefless lawyer. So they didn't, <laughs> he didn't have much in the way of any kind of cachet or prominence in his profession. But he lived about a block away from the, how, the home that Mr. McMeachin purchased. And somehow this must have raised something in him, Yvonne, when the Supreme Court just a decade and a half ago said that there can be separate but equal, but it just looked like to him that they were not on equal footing. And so he began a, to make it his personal mission to suggest to the city council of Baltimore that something should be done about this encroachment into our residences by Negro people. Well, he was successful and ironically, the solicitor general at the time of, of Baltimore was a gentleman named Edgar Allan Poe. Nope, not, not the poet, but his <laughs> name nonetheless was Edgar Allan Poe. Wow. And the city ordinance did exactly what you, what you mentioned, Steve. It, there were two previous versions of the ordinance that had some flaws to it. They went to court and they, they were struck down. But the final version of that ordinance did exactly what you mentioned. It forbade the sale of a particular home if that block was predominantly occupied in residences by whites, no black person could be sold at home. And the reverse was true. If, a, if an area was predominantly um, residing in by blacks, no white person could live in that, in that home. Well, in that law became the, the 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 that became law in Baltimore in 1911, 1913. There is a challenge to it, and ironically, George W. McMeachin is one of the lawyers who is challenging that provision that his own actions uh, gave rise to. Took that to the Maryland Court of Appeals, but the Maryland Court of Appeals sustained and upheld the ordinance as a proper exercise of the city's police power. And so that began that began a round of municipal copycat, if you will. Uh, we have in 1912 Winston-Salem adopting the same ordinance, almost word for word, that Baltimore had. 
1913, it happens in Asheville, North Carolina, Richmond, Norfolk, and Roanoke, Virginia, here in Atlanta, uh, Greenville, South Carolina, Madisonville, Kentucky, and a year later, 1914, in Louisville, Birmingham, Alabama, and St. Louis, Missouri. It became known as the Baltimore Idea, and it was pretty much a, a functioned just like the exclusions that were written into state constitutions denying black people the right to vote that began in Mississippi in 1890 when the states began to rewrite their constitutions to get around the 15th Amendment saying you cannot abridge the right to vote based on race, but they began to attach preconditions dealing with and prerequisites around registrations and state after state, starting with Mississippi, going into Alabama, to South Carolina, to Georgia, and on and on began to change their constitutions. And so we've seen as early as 1890 with the right, with, with voting, as we're discussing with the, the, the racial, the restrictive covenant cases here, and even today, there continues to be among certain states sort of the copycat mentality. You have a, you have a pernicious law. We need to have a, a pernicious law. Um, right. What can you do, Punchinella, Punchishoe? We can do it too. It seems to be that <laughs> the kind of thing that's going on. So we get to by the time we get to Louisville, the Baltimore idea, of course, had spread there. And McMeachin and his partner, William Ashby Hawkins, actually file a brief in the Buchanan case on behalf of the NAACP. And this, so that 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 tells you that 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 long arc of how we got to the case with the, the, the case of Buchanan versus Warley. And as we, as we started this portion of the conversation, that's again, they what what the Supreme Court did was not address the matter from the equal protection aspect, but chose to do it from an impairment of contract on an impairment of contract rationale. Yeah, I thought I one of the articles that I read about this case, because this was not a case if it was covered in law school, I forgot it. Um, and I will say property was by far my worst <laughs> subject. <laughs> but um, anyway, if I learned it at any point, I forgot it. Um, but that was one of the things that I thought was interesting in reading about this case and commentary about the case was like, you know, it's an important case, but don't think you're about to read an inspiring um opinion because you're not um and just talking about how everything was couched i mean it's genius really because it was all couched um kind of from the perspective of the white property owner um which i you know i think if if you don't know the background of the case I think you could easily read this case and not even get how important it was or or appreciate the strategy behind why that was so smart to do it that way. It, and that it, it, it's interesting you mentioned Yvonne, and that's why I wanted to, at the beginning, emphasize the context in which the case came. Yeah. Um, and another aspect of that context is that when this case begins in in 1913, the NAACP as an organization is barely four years old. It's, wow. not, it's not the NAACP as we have come to know it at, 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 at right now. It's only been in existence since 1909. And it 
began its foray into the legal arenas around the issue of voting, but the lawyers that ultimately became attached to and part of the NAACP network had begun what we would call and what I call the first civil rights cases as early as 1885 dealing with the exclusion of black people from juries. That was among the very first things that the law, that black lawyers who had graduated from law schools actually gravitated towards because coming out of the reconstruction area, you still had the prevalence of black codes, vagrancy laws, that if a black man didn't, ha wasn't, didn't have employment, he could be summarily arrested just for not having employment. And then, of course, when he's placed on trial, there's no there. He has no no peers on the jury. And so when the black lawyers came out of law school, this was among these were among the very first cases that they were handling. And so these same lawyers sitting in the meetings and the conversations and the discussions about the formation of the NAACP, Found it in, found it interesting and intriguing to say a an aspect of what we're doing here ought to include some kind of legal advocacy for which they had already begun, and to be able to say um, as you mentioned the genius of those practitioners forming these test cases, they themselves were part of the brain trust in engineering what the strategy should be. It uh, they thought. Correctly, I would, I would imagine that it was just a few years ago that there was this that came in coming from the Supreme Court that this was about separate but equal. So we'll test the equal aspect. We'll test it in terms of its fairness, its applicability, its efficiency, its efficacy, its force, its strength with that group of people who enjoyed the rights in the first place. If, if under your present jurisprudence, you are diminishing the rights of, the, of, of, of whites, how, what good is what we're doing? So it was a stroke of genius to do that at that period. So, and, and like you, you, when you read that, you're not about to hear an inspiring tale, but you certainly are, when you read Buchanan, you certainly are catapulted to a time Mm -hmm. where you go, that is a stroke of brilliance in terms of a legal strategy, how to get right. the, in front of the court and get the attention of the court, and more importantly, get the court to agree with the position that you're taking. Yeah, I, I you know, I noticed, uh, you know, so as you said, um, you know, just to make sure our listeners understand the, the background, I mean, after the Civil War, you know, you had Reconstruction that was started where we actually uh, made a lot of forward steps in um, uh, more equal uh, protection, more equal rights uh, for African Americans, and then essentially after Abraham Lincoln is uh, is, is shot and Andrew Johnson takes over, uh, he basically starts rolling back Reconstruction, and you have the Black Codes put in, like you were mentioning, Derek, uh, as well as the um, the the sort of uh, deal that was made to get Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, elected president in order to, you know, um, roll back the military that was down in the South. Um, but during, so during that time, so, I mean, basically we're talking from, you know, late around 1870 up through about 1910, I saw somewhere that there had been a 
total of uh, basically 28, you know, quote unquote, civil rights cases brought in that time period. And 22 of them had been lost. Um, and uh, and then after this case and and. It's not a, an inspiring case the way it's written, and it's but it is a step, although maybe a baby step forward in uh, civil rights. But it's after this case that then the tide starts to turn, and slowly that um, civil rights cases start becoming a lot more successful. And um, you know, up until we you know basically go through uh, Brown versus Board of Education, uh, and then up through the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So it's it's sort of a, a tipping point or a turning point case um, that really, you know, starts to change the the momentum in the uh, in the movement of civil rights. It actually ought to be one of those cases that are that's raised in law school for the point that you made. Uh, what happens when there is virtually and perceptibly nothing on your side? Now, we've, we've heard if you have the facts on your side, you pound the facts. If you have the law on your side, you pound the law. If you have nothing on your side, you, on your side, you pound, you pound the table. That's right. <laughs> well, what do you do when there's no table to pound? Right. <laughs> you've right. got no right. facts. You've got no law. You have no table. What do you do at that particular moment? And you talk about a case study in in what the lawyering endeavor is all about. This is one of those. And I don't know where we put it. I don't know if we limit it over to the in, into the constitutional aspect and the evolution of equal protection. I don't know if we put it in a skills discussion. I don't know if we put it in something for, as it relates to professionalism. But it's, it's, it is a case that should be part of the law school curriculum, if for no other reason, just to indicate this, this is the strength of the lawyering endeavor. It can take a look inside what's happening from a social and civic, political, economic and personal standpoint and craft an approach towards what we all know and believe should be the ultimate solution. But here's where the first step is and let's take it. And it's so it it does have its place in being an inspiring case. It's just not the kind of case that's going to make you stand up and 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 shout hallelujah if you will but it is one that's going to make get your attention and go wow that one's in the scriptures too <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well and i'm so glad you said that derek because i think that that the genius way that they you know that this case was framed that the issues were framed some of those ideas are still are things that you do as a practicing lawyer right now. You know, you as in terms of um, if you have a case with multiple plaintiffs or a potential um, class case, thinking about who your plaintiffs are going to be, thinking about how you frame the issues and what types of claims you bring in a complaint when, you know, when you have multiple options, but there may be strategic reasons for not bringing them, or there may be reasons for, um, appointing a guardian to represent somebody versus having them represented by a parent, things like that, that um, are not necessarily that I think you you kind of learn as you go practicing wise, the importance of framing the issues, framing a case before it even gets started. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what's so I mean, you're right. This case is inspiring once you know 
the backstory and you don't think of it as just a property dispute case that that popped up organically. Mm-hmm. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. Your group, the Arc of Justice Institute, you know, is based on the famous quote that the arc of history is long, but it, you know, bends towards justice. Um, it, it's sort of like, uh, is a great example of that, that, I mean, we're, you know, it, you know, over this time period, you know, we've been working, you know, harder and harder to get more equal rights, more civil rights. And here we are a hundred years later, uh, where we're still working towards that, but, uh, we're still moving forward, but it all sort of starts there. But it, I, I think it teaches, uh, it teaches, uh, citizens, law students and, and lawyers that, um, every step, uh, is helpful. And every step counts, even though you may not get an overwhelming victory mm-hmm. right from the beginning. But, you know, you each each step counts in that in that um, in that progress. Exactly. Well, let's talk about the uh, the second case. Um, so so uh, now we've moved to 1948. Uh, and this is a case called Shelley versus Kramer. Uh, and basically, this one takes place in St. Louis, Missouri, and there was uh, sort of a companion case uh, called McGee versus Sipes that was out of Michigan. And I think these I, I think these are both basically on the same issue that we are we are now out of the realm of city ordinances, but we are into uh, private restrictive covenants that have been put in by neighborhoods. And so essentially what you have in this case um, is that. Um, uh, Mr. Shelley uh, had bought a um, had bought a piece of property in St. Louis in 1945, 
and didn't know that there was a restrictive covenant. And I don't want to read exactly the language that was in there, but it was it was a covenant that had been agreed to by, I think, 50 out of 57 property owners that basically uh, prevented people of uh, in the the quote is of Negro or Mongolian race uh, from uh, op- occupying property. And so after Mr. Uh, after Mr. Shelley um, purchases this piece of property, there is a person that's part of this neighborhood who lives about 10 blocks away named Lewis Kramer, who basically sues in order to prevent Mr. Shelley from uh, moving in and gaining possession to this property because of a restrictive covenant that was in, um, that had been put on the the property. And, um, And so then... Uh, the case goes up to the Supreme Court, along with the case of McGee versus Sipes, which uh, Thurgood Marshall was involved in representing. Um, and the, I think the lawyer for Mr. Shelley was uh, George Vaughn. Um, and basically the holding in that case, which I thought was really interesting, was that the Supreme Court said that a private uh, race based uh, restrictive covenant was not unconstitutional um, and didn't violate the 14th Amendment. But uh, you couldn't ask the state to enforce that. Once you once you go to court to enforce it, then basically you're asking the state uh, or having the state take an action that is a violation of equal protection and due process and does violate the 14th Amendment. Uh, and so basically they um, found uh, for Mr. Shelley against Mr. Kramer and, and, and basically against these restrictive covenants, it, it, basically finding that while while they're not going to stop you from having these restrictive covenants, there's no way you can enforce these through the state or the court system. That is that basically right, Derek? That's it. That 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 is exactly right. And again, we've got some connection. We've got, we've got some background, Yvonne. How you know how this happens and and who's involved and. The central connection is this nexus of lawyers across the country who seemingly have some connection to this new organization called the NAACP. Now, we get to uh, to Shelley versus Kramer and the NAACP is, is now almost 30 years old and it had begun to enjoy some success in in in, in creating chapters across the country explain to people that here are your rights, here is an, and here is an organization that will spend its every waking moment to defend and to advocate in courts. And as I mentioned before, there are lawyers all across the country uh, who are becoming involved in the NAACP. Well, out in California, out in Los Angeles, one of those lawyers' name is Burton Cerruti. I just kind of like saying his name, Burton Cerruti. <laughs> right, just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it has such cachet to it, such strength mm-hmm. to it. Just mm-hmm. Edward Burton Cerruti. It, it, it sounds like somebody who should be having the, a nomination to the Supreme Court by somebody from that standpoint. <laughs> right. But but Mr. Cerruti is a lawyer out in Los Angeles, and he graduates from Brooklyn Law School. And he, his first one of rather his first forays into advocating for people's rights is becoming vehemently and publicly opposed to the movie, The Birth of a Nation. He wages <clears throat> nearly a, a, a campaign to, 
to dispel the stereotypes in that movie and to ensure that this movie is not is not going to be regarded as the definitive statement on African-American existence. Well, of course, you can very well imagine that he is a, a beloved figure by the by the black community in Los Angeles at that time. And then he himself becomes one of the principal founders of the Los Angeles chapter of the NAACP, probably after having heard or met with or had come in somehow somehow come into contact with W.E.B. Du Bois, who is at that point the preeminent national voice for the NAACP. Um, and the conversation about uh, the, the, that the, the, the work that Du Bois is doing and the positions and philosophies that he have rank very high in the nation and in the black community with respect to the philosophies and work that Booker T. Washington is doing. And so Mr. Cerruti, Burton Cerruti, is the, 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 the face of what you would call civil rights matters in California, in Los Angeles, including the growing use of restrictive covenants in the municipalities. And the same thing out in California, they had they had certainly come to understand that the federal court with a case like Buchanan had struck that you struck those ordinance down on grounds of impairment of contract. And they began to be creative and they began to use private contracts since you since the court has now said you cannot impair the right to contract through these ordinances. Then we will just use out. We will use the contract to contain the restrictions that we want, as opposed to asking our legislative bodies to to do so. Well, there's another gentleman named Lauren Miller. Uh, and Lauren Miller is an incredibly um, distinct figure in, in 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 the annals of law. He he comes out of law school and he immediately has a reaction that law it might be a waste of time. He is he and a few other of his contemporaries are disillusioned by what they thought was a failure of to follow through on some of the progressive expectations and assurances that were supposed to be a part of the Woodrow Wilson administration. And he really becomes focused on issues of class more so than issues of race. And he felt that law was sort of somewhat inefficient to address the root causes and, and, and many tentacles of class than his contemporaries People like Charles Hamilton Houston and some of the other law graduates that he knew, they, they focused more on the law. Um, well, Mr. Cerruti passes in 1927. The work that Lauren Miller had begun to do with Mr. Cerruti and on his own in, in, in handling cases, particularly those cases that involved black men involved in the criminal justice system, the, uh, the inequities and unfairness there, allowed Mr. Miller to gain a reputation there. And upon Mr. Cerruti's passing, the black community in Los Angeles act almost anointed Miller with the, with the mantle of being the restrictive covenants lawyer. And that put him in a little bit of conflict because as I mentioned earlier, he didn't think the law was the appropriate remedy. He didn't think it was the appropriate tool. 
He owned a newspaper coming out of law school and he used that platform to as more so than law. But now all of a sudden here he is and he's called he's 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 being asked to handle these restrictive covenant cases. But it was not too long after that he began to change his viewpoint because as we've alluded, as you alluded to, alluded to Yvonne, we when we're sitting and we're thinking about strategizing and who to name as a plaintiff and what court court to put it in and, and just take using everything in our panoply of how to how to, how the law can improve conditions, he began to see it more less theoretical and more practical. And then he began actually taking on restrictive covenant cases. And he in fact became Mr. Restrictive Covenants. He was eradicating the use of, he was fighting rather against uh, the, the, the federal housing authorities' cognizance of restrictive covenants in contracts that were backed by the, by the federal government. Mm-hmm. He, did it, he did it in context of long before people became, it was, people became fascinated about what, how veterans were treated when veterans were having problems finding homes out in Los Angeles. And keep in mind, we're, we're, we're approaching the point in Los Angeles and California where World War II is about to break out. And so there's a great uh, buildup of the, the military outside in California. He is seeing how uh, members of the armed forces are treated with respect to housing and how that treatment is involved with restrictive covenants. And so he is really becoming a go-to person out in California for for restrictive covenants. Well, so when Shelley versus Kramer comes along, who's the person to go to? It's Lauren Miller. And when you mentioned Thurgood Marshall, there was such a great respect for Lauren Miller. I I came across something where they said, where it was written that the lawyers in, the the members of the bar in in Los Angeles and the surrounding areas had such admiration and 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 held his work in such awe they would postpone their cases to go hear him in court i'm pretty sure their clients yeah. weren't too happy with that yeah. right. uh, but they would do it they would do it nonetheless just to hear him artfully articulate not just what the law was but almost in pinpoint precision to explain how the application of a particular ordinance affected one individual client on Tuesdays and Thursdays where and everyone else was only affected on one day of the week. He was just that precise, that that detail. So admired was he by that nexus of NAACP lawyers. He was among the last, among those final editors that Thurgood Marshall would submit briefs to on major cases. When he submitted, when he when he went to when when Thurgood sent went to Lauren Miller um, as far as the Brown versus Board of Education brief is concerned, there there are some letters that go back and forth between Lauren and Thurgood Marshall, and Lauren spares absolutely no punches whatsoever. At one particular mm-hmm. point, we're focusing on a historical argument that Thurgood that the briefs were making. He just wrote back, "This is weak and conciliatory." And he gave them advice as to how to change it from that standpoint. Lauren was one of those was one of those people that Thurgood would talk to first and last in terms of how to proceed. So it's no surprise, of course, that Lauren, in terms of making this a big case, a bigger case, he got a hold of Thurgood Marshall. 
And we end up with Shelly versus Kramer in the court. And there is a direct request from the court. Look at this on 14th Amendment equal protection grounds. Look at it from the standpoint of saying that the use of racial restrictive covenants in contracts is viol is violated in and of itself of the 14th Amendment. Unlike what was done in Buchanan, here we want to actually look at it. Well, the court in Shelley did look at it and went through the historical aspects of that. You know, the right to contract is one of those things that the framers held in, in high regard and a as a, an odious provision of a contract may be just that, but it does not rise to the level of being violative of the 14th Amendment. It focused on what we call the plain meaning, the plain language. It is, it involves state action here. It says that no state shall deprive a person of equal protection of the laws, and we don't have that in the contract itself. But in that fit of, of, of legal genius, the court agreed with one of the brief writers and said, but we do have judicial, we do have state action in the form of judicial enforcement. And it talked about that long line of cases that it held that just, that state action has, is found in, 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 the, in the work, in the activities of the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch. To seek the enforcement of the judiciary is in effect, the court saying, seeking the the blessings of the state. And so in, there's no way to separate that. To, if, you bring, if you bring these covenants before the court and you are asking the court to say, yes, we can, in, we, 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 we can and we will uh, agree with the conditions of the covenant, then you are asking the court to give its, you're asking the state to give its blessing. And therefore now the state, by virtue of the judicial branch, has now engaged in an action that deprives a person of their equal protection. And that judicial enforcement rising to the level of state action is what makes this a violation of that, of that amendment. And so the, re the restrictive covenant cases are on that reason unconstitutional. Derek, I wanted to ask you about something, and this goes back to, um, I thought if anybody knows, it's going to be Derek. <laughs> um, this goes back to when, when Steve was introing the case. But but one of the things that stands out just as you're reading about sort of the background of it is what is this Mongolian thing about? Right. Was that like a like a historical like. Just I mean, obviously, we're, we're already dealing with racism, but just like a racist uh, what is that? What is that about? <laughs> or did they have a separate concern about people from I, Mongolia? I, I, mean. I, I wish I had an easy answer <laughs> other than to simply say that there has always been in the annals of human history this impulse, if you will, or instinct, and I like the word impulse better, to classify people according to a particular characteristic, a particular phenotype that will justify placing one person in dominion over another person. Mm -hmm. So we have out in California a, a large contingency of what we would refer to as the, at that moment, referred to the Orient, the Orient, 
the Asian population, Chinese population, stemming from the period in history when we, we exploited Chinese labor to create the vast railroad system. Mm -hmm. And so now, of course, human beings have a tendency to find a way to get along with each other, irrespective of their ethnicities and backgrounds. So you might just happen to it, it might come as a surprise to people who think who believe in terms of purity and things of that nature. But you just might actually happen. It might happen one day that a person of, quote unquote, Negro descent and Mongolian descent might sit down, and have a conversation with each other and say, hey, would you like to go to a movie? And the next thing you know, people end up intermarrying and things of that particular nature. So as a way to maintain this purity, as a way to maintain this sense of what we should, what, what should properly be characterized as America and as an American, then we're going to make certain that we come up with definitions and explanations of who does not fit in the desired out, the desired um, example and exclude them. So that's the only, that's the explanation, Yvonne, as to yeah. why you're choosing in your statute to include, excuse me, to include these two groups of people. And you're not, it, 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 ha, it, it has no, it, it makes no sense, except in the context of, 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 as I mentioned, this is what we do when human beings come into contact with each other. I have named this uh, the Dominion Impulse Disorder. Hmm. Um, I've been thinking about this since we come out of the issues surrounding uh, everything under the heading of Black Lives Matter. And we, as a nation, we've finally gotten to the point where everybody can say white supremacy without trembling. But I've been thinking that that probably is just a branch on the tree. Mm -hmm. And it's not the root aspect of it. We go back in history. We've always seen that when when human beings come into interaction with one another, sadly, there is always this thought that one has to be in domination over the other. Men have to be in domination over women. One race has to exercise dominion over the other, the rich over the poor the educated over the uneducated, this religion over that one, um, Georgia over Georgia Tech, you know, uh, Michigan over Ohio State. There's always got to be in interaction within human beings, this dominion impulse disorder. And that's to me, that's the root of everything. Mm -hmm. How do we remove that, that impulse in our interactions with one another? And you fast forward throughout history, and by the time you get to the restrictive covenants, we've just decided in that particular moment, because of the demographics that are happening out here on the West Coast, because of what's going on, we're going to exclude, we are going to characterize. Another part of my favorite language is we start the Constitution with we the people and 120 some odd words later, we 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 include the constitutionally incompatible and incongruous phrase, all other persons. Right. Law, it, you, to talk about the, a great trial is the longest running trial in history. We the people versus all other persons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what we've been doing 
is figuring out how many different groups of people fit can be other. How can we otherize this person at this time? So at that moment, the group that could be easily otherized because of how the history associated with how that those populations came to be on in, in the state at that particular moment, we will express that otherizing sentiment in our covenants along the lines of being Negro or Mongoloid. Long-winded answer. No. No. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, because it's... Yeah, it's important. And I mean, when I read it, that's what I was I was wondering, like, is this just a completely, you know, inaccurate term used to be to being referenced to referencing, you know, Asian people or, you know, it just seemed so um, odd. And but but I think but I think your answer, it was better than the question and that it it. Um, it kind of explains what where this me- mentality is coming from and wh- what it was trying to accomplish. Um, but, you know, I, I it is a, reading this decision and I was I was so glad that you linked these two up for us, Derek. But it is, um, you know, it it is refreshing, I feel like, especially when you compare it to Buchanan, that the issue feels at least more that it's addressed head on, you know, like, I, I wonder, like, when it comes to Buchanan, like how, you know, if those lawyers, as long as they had, you know, an outcome that was a win, if, if it still felt like a win, if it wasn't addressing, you know, the sort of, um, the equal protection, protection issues or what we would think of what was morally wrong about it. I, I remember studying, the equal protection clause in in law school. I remember when we got to the portion of discussing the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I remember my disgust at knowing that the jurisprudence and rationale of upholding the Civil Rights Act and the legislative rationale for it was based on commerce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was disgusted that there was no no way to just say in Congress and then have that affirmed in court that just says, it's just about people. Mm-hmm. At the same time, studying the law, I became intellectually fascinated with the abject, abject brilliance of the argument of, of focusing on commerce. Right. I thought, what a, what a wonderful thing to do. Right. And then, of course, when you when you take that back and you and you go, I, I for some reason I I cannot help but see the historical arcs, if you will, again, if you will, how, the, how how everything connects and how everything is, in the words of, of, of the author, James Redfield, the longer now, now is a much longer period than the 24 hours we think it is, or mm-hmm. this year 2021 now has is a much longer period. 
And so when you go back to the 16th century and you take a look at how this is my view, that this is the portal into which most of our present situations, that it's where they have their roots. And when you begin to see the emergence of globalization in the 16th century, uh, the, the, the focus on precious metals as a way to combat the, the global dominance of the spice trade and in tucked inside the, the, the emphasis on precious metals in order to extract them from the ground and carry them from one place to the other. You need horses and labor. And we made horses part of the global trade and we made slaves part of the global trade we made we made people commodities mm. mm-hmm. and so the evolution of commoditizing people went from the 16th to the 17th to the 18th century on to the founding of the United States of America, embedded into the colonies of the United States of America, having the attitudes, perceptions, presumptions, and preferences sneak their way into the Constitution, having those same attitudes finding their way into our jurisprudence. And then we get to the 1960s and we're having a conversation that says, well, you know what, from a public accommodation standpoint, if this, if these attitudes touch commerce, then Congress has a right to say you can't feel that way. You can't behave that way. Your attitudes are going to have to be adjusted because it's touching commerce. And so then when, when I when I find when I look back at it and go, it had to be solved where it started mm-hmm. in commerce. There was a commercial attitude that commoditized people. We might have to have a commercial re-attitude to decommoditize people. Mm -hmm. And so I have this range of emotions, Steve, disgust, intellectual fascination, Mm -hmm. historical revelation. And it's going, okay, so now what what do we do with all of this? Because at the beginning and the end of the day, it is still just about people. Yeah, it's interesting in reading the Shelley versus Kramer case. I mean, that's one thing that I was struck by is that, you know, I, I get what the Supreme Court is saying at that point, you know, that that the, uh, you know, the ability to contract with each other is something that we take, you know, is, is very important. But I mean, at the end of the day, wrong is wrong. And, and you know, putting these racist covenants in is just wrong. Uh, but they had to sort of, you know, uh, I guess in an, in an intellectual way for them, uh, say, well, you know, we're not going to get in the way of you contracting the way you want to, even if you're contracting something that is just morally and, uh, you know, morally wrong. Uh, but, uh, but we are going to say that the state's not going to get involved in that. Um, but you know, it, you kind of wish would, you know, why didn't they just say restricted covenants are just wrong? But I mean, I, from a, from a constitutional standpoint, uh, it, it is, I, I, it's exactly what you just said. On the one hand, I'm kind of disgusted that they didn't just say it. And on the other hand, it's intellectually interesting that they, you know, found their way to make it illegal uh, anyways, but, uh, but that they had to sort of do it in this roundabout way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 
even as we study the cases now, even as we as, as I put things together, as far as the podcast is concerned, even as I'm reevaluating and retooling the Arc of Justice Instant Institute, the Arc of Justice Project in this in, in this in this present slash post pandemic world. How do we how do we navigate who we are in, 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 with these newfound things? I, I, I still grapple with that dual reaction to things, dig, disgust and intrigue. Yeah. And yeah. it causes a bit of consternation at any given moment. Uh, at some, as you point out, Steve, sometimes I just I just you just want to say right is right and wrong is wrong. And it should it doesn't really take four hundred and seventy five paragraphs in a judicial opinion to say you can't do that. <laughs> right. And, and we have examples of that. That case that I mentioned that Mr. McMeachin uh, worked on back in Baltimore uh, state versus Gurry sort of alluded to. It. But there was another instance in California when Lauren Miller was actually taking on one of the restricted covenant cases involving the actress, actress Hattie McDaniel. She had purchased some property out in California and it was subject to a restrictive covenant case. And parties went before the judge and they and they offered their arguments and the judge wanted to see the property. Well, he went to see the property. And when he came back to the courtroom, uh, paraphrasing, he said, it's just high time that black citizens be, be given the rights they were accorded under the 14th Amendment. Case dismissed. Right. It wasn't 700 pages. It wasn't a 455 paragraph opinion. It was just about 17 words. Yeah. It's just it, he, and basically he just said what you said, Steve. Right is right, wrong is wrong, and this is just ridiculous. Get out of my courtroom. I'm I'm ready to go home already. Okay. <laughs> right. 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 I got to fight. If I sit in traffic, it's not going to be because of this. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> so but you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, Eric. no, go ahead. Mark. No, I just was going to say, and the, and the flip side, when when you know, I was thinking when you were talking about it, is well, you know, it's something that we that I hope everyone can agree now. Um, that, you know, it's very clear what was right and what was wrong. But I guess I guess the flip side of, you know, when it's crammed into this framework of of commerce or or whatever that that, OK, well. Maybe that is more comforting or can be more comforting than it being left in as a value judgment when you're not sure how you know, if, if somebody's going to be right, you know, according to what you think is right, right. you know, yeah. the idea that, okay, that it's, it's, it's very sort of, it can feel very unsatisfying, unsatisfying and unjust. And to, to, you know, think of it as like, you know, plugging the commerce clause stuff into the computer and, and whatever comes out. But at the same time, maybe that's more comforting than just leaving it in the hands of, of somebody, you know, a judge that might be, you know, bigoted or prejudiced or whatever, and just asking them to decide what's right or what's wrong. Yeah. I, I wish I had the magic amulet to solve yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't. It's but, yeah. but one thing, as, as we're discussing it, I can no longer avoid making the statement that the course that we have charted for ourselves by constantly ignoring what is right and what is wrong mm -hmm. because of our apprehensions of it 
just keeps us going around in what I call just yeah. the revolving door. It, yeah. I don't know what religion you would have to have. I don't know what law school you would have to attend. I don't know what judicial philosophy you would have to have for everybody to agree to the following statement. If we've already decided that in the field of commerce that headphones are a good thing for someone to have if they're doing a podcast, and if we've decided that these headphones are a good thing and they need to be made by somebody, and if we're going to pay $17.50 an hour for the people to make the headphones, I just think it doesn't matter if you are a male or a female making the headphones that one of them needs to make $17.50 and the other one makes $15.25. Yeah. I just don't think it matters all the philosophies that we come up with and the, 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 the ideologies that we hide behind. Mm-hmm. And I want to emphasize that import, that we hide behind just to recognize that we've already said po- headphones make sense. We've already said that we would pay $17.50 an hour. If a person walks over and happens to be female and can make headphones, why are we paying $15.22 an hour? It mm-hmm. just doesn't. It's wrong. Yeah. And we just simply have to say that mm-hmm. and be done with that and be like the judge in the case that dealt with Lorraine Hansberry, I don't want to sit in traffic because we're having a legislative debate about whether Yvonne could make 1750. You guys know that's just that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She can make headphones. We we value headphones. We've set this price. They all they, they get paid $17.50. And why do we need a philosophy around that? Yeah. Why do yeah. we need yeah. why do we have to come up with explanations for that? We could borrow from that particular judge who had the benefit of uh, adjudicating that case with the with 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 history in hindsight. Maybe if that had been the case of a case of first impression for him, he might have said, well, well, tell me a little bit more about why it's problematic to live next to people of color. But because he had the benefit of, 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 of and the weight of history behind him, he could just simply say, it's about time. This is crazy. Yeah. And so, Yvonne, we have we have something like he like he did. We have the benefit of history behind us. We are outfitted with sufficient and credible testimony in the form of history that tells us. We have charted a course that makes absolutely no sense and it is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. That's the reason we're experiencing all these weird movements and everything at this particular moment. Mm-hmm. Everybody has their own movement and they have it with, with, with names that just, in my opinion, just masks for what's really going of something else that's going on. Just the pain of, of associated with having to assert legitimacy based on something other than just what's right and what's wrong. Mm. All because we are afraid of saying that because we can't figure out, well, who's the arbiter of rightness and wrongness? Yeah. I I think it's interesting just to kind of let the uh, audience recognize like where uh, the country was at the time that Shelley versus Kramer, again, we're in 1948, 
that during that case, three of the justices had to recuse themselves because they lived in neighborhoods that had restrictive covenants on them. So, you know, I mean, you're talking on a nine person court, three of them are recusing themselves because they live in the same type of neighborhoods that are being uh, litigated over. So uh, this was obviously a very common practice and uh, was widespread among uh, across the country. That was uh, who who made the motion? Did he do it themselves? <laughs> right. Exactly. That's right. Somebody, That's right. Just, somebody bring it to their attention. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Justice Story, I think you probably need to refuse yourself because. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. I did not know that was in my deed. Who, who knew? What am I saying? Yeah. <laughs> Don't ask me. Did I mention how bad I was at property law? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, uh, well, uh, Derek, let me uh, let me just thank you. Uh, this has been just a great, uh, as always, just a great discussion about uh, about history, about, um, you know, the the uh, civil rights uh, era and then about, you know, where this country has been and where we're going and, and how we got there through some of our uh, some of our great legal cases. Uh, let me remind everybody, we've been talking about the Buchanan versus Worley case, which was in 1917. It's a Supreme Court decision. You can look up. Uh, and uh, Shelley versus Kramer, which is also a Supreme Court decision in 1948. And we have been talking with Derek Alexander Pope, uh, the president and founder of the Ark of Justice Institute. And you can look him up at onthearc.net. Uh, you can also listen to him uh, and you'll hear a cameo from Yvonne uh, <laughs> on the Hidden Legal Figures podcast. So uh, please go uh, check out the, the website onthearc.net or listen or, or do both. Uh, uh, go to Hidden Legal Figures podcast. Derek, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Yvonne. Always a pleasure to be here. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.